discovered in them by the all-seeing eye, which, if true, would indeed transfer the praise from the Creator and consign it to the creature. But the doctrine of predestination, absolute, free, unconditional predestination, here steps in and gives God his own. It lays the axe to the root of human boasting and cuts down, for which reason the natural man hates it, every legal, every independent, every self-righteous imagination that would exalt itself against the grace of God and the glory of Christ. It tells us that God hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in his Son, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, in order to our being afterwards made holy and blameless before him in love. Ephesians 1 Of course, whatever truly and spiritually good thing is found in any person, it is the especial gift and work of God, given and wrought in consequence of eternal unmerited election to grace and glory. Whence the greatest saint cannot triumph over the most abandoned sinner, but is led to refer the entire praise of his salvation, both from sin and hell, to the mere goodwill and sovereign purpose of God, who hath graciously made him to differ from that world which lieth in wickedness. Such being the tendency of this blessed doctrine, how injurious both to God and man would the suppression of it be. Well does St. Augustine argue that the duties of piety ought to be preached up, that he who hath ears to hear may be instructed how to worship God aright, and as chastity should be publicly recommended and enforced, that he who hath ears to hear may know how to possess himself in sanctification. And as charity, moreover, should be inculcated from the pulpit, that he who hath ears to hear may be excited to the ardent love of God in his neighbor. In like manner should God's predestination of his favors be openly preached, that he who hath ears to hear may learn to glory not in himself, but in the Lord. 4. Predestination should be publicly taught and insisted upon in order to confirm and strengthen true believers in the certainty and confidence of their salvation. Footnote. Our venerable reformers in the 17th of the 39 articles make the very same observation and nearly in the same words. The godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons, because it doth greatly establish and confirm their faith of everlasting salvation to be enjoyed through Christ, etc. End of footnote. For when regenerate persons are told and are enabled to believe that the glorification of the elect is so assuredly fixed in God's eternal purpose that it is impossible for any of them to perish, and when the regenerate are led to consider themselves as actually belonging to this elect body of Christ, what can establish, strengthen, settle their faith like this? Nor is such a faith presumptuous, for every converted man may and ought to conclude himself elected, since God the Spirit renews those only who were chosen by God the Father 
and redeemed by God the Son. This is a hope which maketh not ashamed, nor can possibly issue in disappointment, if entertained by those into whose hearts the love of God is poured forth by the Holy Ghost given unto them. Romans chapter 5 verse 5 The holy triumph and assurance resulting from this blessed view are expressly warranted by the Apostle, where he deduces effectual calling from a prior predestination and infers the certainty of final salvation from effectual calling. Whom he did predestinate, then he also called, and whom he called, then he also justified, and whom he justified, then he also glorified. Romans 8 how naturally from such premises does the Apostle add, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who and where is he that condemneth them? Who and what shall separate us from the love of Christ? In all these things we are, and shall be, more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded, I am most clearly and assuredly confident, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So elsewhere, the foundation of the Lord, that is, his decree or purpose according to election, standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, which is particularly noted by the apostle, lest true believers might be discouraged and begin to doubt their own certain perseverance to salvation, either from a sense of their remaining imperfections or from observing the open apostasy of unregenerate professors. 2 Timothy chapter 2 How little obliged, therefore, are the flock of Christ to these persons who would, by stifling the mention of predestination, expunge the sense uncertainty of everlasting blessedness from the list of Christian privileges. 5. Without the doctrine of predestination, we cannot enjoy a lively sight and experience of God's special love and mercy towards us in Christ Jesus. Blessings not peculiar, but conferred indiscriminately on every man, without distinction or exception, would neither be a proof of peculiar love in the donor, nor calculated to excite peculiar wonder and gratitude in the receiver. For instance, rain from heaven, though an invaluable benefit, is not considered as an argument of God's special favor to some individuals above others. And why? Because it falls on all alike, as much on the rude wilderness and the barren rock, as on the cultivated garden and the fruitful field. But the blessing of election, somewhat like the Sibylline books, raises in value proportionately to the fewness of its objects, so that when we recollect that, in the view of God, to whom all things are at once present, the whole mass of mankind was considered as justly liable to condemnation on account of original and actual iniquity, his selecting some individuals from among the rest and graciously setting them apart in Christ for salvation, both from sin and punishment, were such acts of sovereign goodness as exhibit the exceeding greatness in the entire 
freeness of his love in the most awful, amiable, and humbling light. In order then that the special grace of God may shine, predestination must be preached, even the internal and immutable predestination of his people to faith and everlasting life. From those who are left under the power of guilt, says Augustine, the person who is delivered from it may learn what he too must have suffered had not grace stepped in to his relief. And if it was that grace that interposed, it could not be the reward of man's merit, but the free gift of God's gratuitous goodness. Some, however, call it unjust for one to be delivered while another, though no more guilty than the former, is condemned. If it be just to punish one, it would be just to punish both. I grant that both might have been justly punished. Let us therefore give thanks unto God our Savior for not inflicting that vengeance on us, which, from the condemnation of our fellow sinners, we may conclude to have been our desert, no less than theirs. Had they as well as we been ransomed from their captivity, we could have framed but little conception of the penal wrath due and strictness of justice to sin. On the other hand, had none of the fallen race been ransomed and set at liberty, how could divine grace have displayed the riches of its liberality? The same evangelical father delivers himself elsewhere to the same effect. Hence, says he, appears the greatness of that grace by which so many are freed from condemnation. And they may form some idea of misery due to themselves from the dreadfulness of the punishment that awaits the rest. Whence those who rejoice are taught to rejoice not in their own merits, for they see that they have no more merit than the damned, but in the Lord. Six. Hence results another reason nearly connected with the former for the unreserved publication of this doctrine. Namely, that from a sense of God's peculiar, eternal, and unalterable love to his people, their hearts may be inflamed to love him in return. Slender indeed will be my motives to the love of God on the supposition that my love to him is beforehand with his love to me, and that the very continuance of his favor is suspended on the weathercock of my variable will, or the flimsy thread of my imperfect affection. Such a precarious, dependent love were unworthy of God and calculated to produce but a scanty and cold reciprocation of love for man. At the happiest of times and in the best of frames below, our love to God is but a spark, though small and quivering, yet inestimably precious because divinely kindled, fanned and maintained in the soul and in earnest of better to come. Whereas love, as it glows in God, is an immense sun which shone without beginning and shall shine without end. It is probable then that the spark of human love should give being to the Son of Divine, and that the luster and warmth of this 
should depend on the glimmering of that. So, yet, it must be, if predestination is not true, and so it must be presented if predestination is not taught. Would you therefore know what it is to love God as your Father, Friend, and Savior? You must fall down before His electing mercy. Until then, you are only hovering about in quest of true felicity. But you will never find the door, much less can you enter into rest until you are enabled to love Him because He has first loved you. 1 John 4.19 This being the case, it is evident that without taking predestination into the account, genuine morality and the performance of truly good works will suffer, starve, and die away. Love to God is the very fuel of acceptable obedience. Withdraw the fuel and the flame expires. But the fuel of holy affection, if scripture, experience, and observation are allowed to carry any conviction, can only be cherished, maintained, and increased in the heart by the sense of apprehension of God's predestinating love to us in Christ Jesus. Now our obedience to God will always hold proportion to our love. If the one be relaxed and feeble, the other cannot be alert and vigorous. In electing goodness being the very life and soul of the former, the latter, even good works, must flourish or decline in proportion as election is glorified or obscured. 7. Hence arises a seventh argument for the preaching of predestination, namely that by it we may be excited to the practice of universal godliness. The knowledge of God's love to you will make you an ardent lover of God, and the more love you have to God, the more will you excel in all the duties and offices of love. Add to this that the scripture view of predestination includes the means as well as the end. Christian predestinations are for keeping together what God hath joined. He who is for attaining the end without going to it through the means is a self-deluding enthusiast. He, on the other hand, who carefully and consciously uses the means of salvation as steps to the end is the true Calvinist. Now, eternal life being that to which the elect are ultimately destined, faith, the effect of saving grace, and sanctification, the effect of faith, are blessings to which the elect are intermediately appointed, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Ephesians 1.4 We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 6 God hath chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 elect according to the foreknowledge or ancient love of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2 Nor is salvation 
the appointed end of election, at all the less secure in itself, but the more so for standing necessarily connected with the intervening means, seeing both these and that are inseparably joined in order to the certain accomplishment of that through these. It only demonstrates that without regeneration of the heart and purity of life, the elect themselves are not led to heaven. But then it is incontestable from the whole current of scripture that these intermediate blessings shall most infallibly be vouchsafed to every elect person in virtue of God's absolute covenant and through the effectual agency of his almighty spirit. Internal sanctification constitutes our meekness for the kingdom to which we were predestinated and a course of external righteousness is one of the grand evidences by which we make our election sure to our present comfort and apprehension of it. Footnote. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 10 Give diligence to make your calling and election undoubted to get some solid and incontestable evidence of your predestination to life is an undoubting hope Second Corinthians 1 7 is a more assured and unquestionable word of prophecy Second Peter chapter 1 verse 19 and the footnote 8 unless predestination be preached we shall want one great inducement to the exercise of brotherly kindness and charity when a converted person is assured on one hand that all whom God hath predestinated to eternal life shall infallibly enjoy that eternal life to which they are chosen and on the other hand when he discerns the signs of election not only in himself but also in the rest of his fellow believers and concludes from thence as in a judgment of charity he ought that they are as really elected as himself how must his heart glow with love to his Christian brethren how feelingly will he sympathize with them in their distresses how tenderly will he bear with their infirmities how readily will he relieve the former and how easily overlook the latter nothing will so effectually knit together the hearts of God's people in time as the belief of their having been written by name in one book of life from everlasting and the unshaken confidence of their future exaltation to one in the same state of glory above will occasion the strongest cement of affection below this was possibly one end of our Savior's so frequently reminding his apostles of their election namely that from the sense of such an unspeakable blessing in which they were all equally interested they might learn to love one another with pure hearts fervently and cultivate on earth that holy friendship which they well knew from the immutability of God's decrees would be eternally matured to the highest perfection and refinement in heaven St. Paul likewise might have some respect to the same amiable inference when treating of the saints collectively for he uses these sweet and endearing expressions he hath chosen us he hath predestinated us etc that believers considering themselves as 
co-electing Christ might be led to love each other with peculiar intenseness as the spiritual children of one electing Father, brethren in grace, and joint heirs of glory. Did the regenerate of the present age but practically advert to the everlasting nearness in which they stand related to each other, how happy would be the effect. Hence it appears that, since the preaching of predestination is thus evidently calculated to kindle and keep alive the twofold congenial flame of love to God and love to man, it must necessarily, consequence, conclude to the advancement of universal obedience and to the performance of every social and religious duty. Footnote. Our excellent Bishop Deverant instances particularly in the great religious duty of prayer. The consideration of election, says this learned and evangelical prelate, that stir up the faithful to constancy in prayer. For, having learnt that all good tending to salvation is prepared for them out of God's good pleasure, they are hereby encouraged to call for, and as it were, to draw down from heaven by their prayers those good things which from eternity were ordained for the elect. Moreover, the same spirit of adoption who beareth witness to our spirits that we are God's chosen children is also the spirit of prayer and supplication and inflameth our hearts to call daily upon our Heavenly Father. Those, therefore, who from the certainty of predestination do pretend that the duty of prayer is superfluous do plainly show that they are so far from having any certainty of their predestination that they have not the least sense thereof. To be slack and sluggish in prayer is not the property of those who, by the testimony of God's Spirit, have got assurance of their election but rather of such as have either none or very small apprehension thereof. For as soon as anyone is believing doth conceive himself to be one of God's elect children, he earnestly desireth to procure unto himself by prayer those good things which he believeth that God prepared for his children before the foundation of the world. And the footnote. Which alone was there nothing else to recommend it would be a sufficient motive to the public delivery of that important doctrine. 9. Lastly, without a due sense of predestination, we shall want the surest and the most powerful inducement to patience, resignation, and dependence on God under every spiritual and temporal affliction. How sweet must the following considerations be to a distressed believer. 1. There most certainly exists an almighty, all-wise, and infinitely gracious God. 2. He has given me in times past, and is giving me at present, if I had but eyes to see it, many and signal intimations of his love to me, both in a way of providence and grace. 3. This love of his is immutable. He never repents of it, nor withdraws it. 
4. Whatever comes to pass in time is the result of his will from everlasting. Consequently, 5. My afflictions were a part of his original plan and are all ordered in number, weight, and measure. 6. The very hairs of my head are, every one, counted by him, nor can a single hair fall to the ground but in consequence of his determination. Hence, 7. My distresses are not the result of chance, accident, or a fortuitous combination of circumstances. But 8. The providential accomplishment of God's purpose and 9. Designed to answer some wise and gracious ends. Nor 10. Shall my affliction continue a moment longer than God sees meet. 11. He who brought me to it has promised to support me under it and to carry me through it. 12. All shall most assuredly work together for his glory and my good. Therefore, 13. The cup which my heavenly Father hath given me to drink, shall I not drink it? Yes, I will, in the strength he imparts, even rejoice in tribulation, and using the means of possible redress which he hath or may hereafter put into my hands, I shall commit myself and the event to him whose purpose cannot be overthrown, whose plan cannot be disconcerted, and who, whether I am resigned or not, will still go on to work all things after the counsel of his own will. Footnote The The learned Lipsius thus writes to an unmarried friend who appears to have referred himself to his judgment and direction. Whether you marry or live single, you will still have something or other to molest you. Nor does the whole course of man's present sublimary life afford him a single draught of joy without a mixture of wormwood in the cup. This is the universal and immutable law, which to resist were no less vain than sinful and rebellious. As the wrestlers of old had their respective antagonists assigned them, not by their own choice, but by necessary lot, in like manner each of the human race has this peculiar destiny allotted to him by providence. To conquer this is to endure it. All our strength in this warfare is to undergo the inevitable pressure. It is victory to yield ourselves to fate. About two years after, the celebrated Christian Seneca wrote as follows to the same person, Theodore Lewins, who had married and just lost his wife in childbed. Who is fate? God's everlasting ordinance, an ordinance settled in eternity and for eternity, an ordinance which he can never repeal, disannul, or set aside either in whole or in part. Now, if this his decree be eternal, a retro and immovable, why does foolish man struggle and fight against that which must be, especially seeing fate is thus the offspring of God? Why does impious man murmur and complain? You cannot justly find fault with anything determined or done by him as though it were evil or severe. 
for he is all goodness and benevolence. Were you to define his nature, you could not do it more suitably than in these terms. Is, therefore, your wife dead? Debute. It is right she should be so. But was it right that she should die and at that very time and by that very kind of death? Most certainly. The decree so ordained it. The restless acumen of the human mind must sift and canvas the appointments of fate but cannot alter them. Were we truly wise we should be implicitly submissive and endure with willingness what we must endure whether we be willing or not. A due sense of our inability to reverse the disposals of providence and the consequent vanity of resisting them would administer solid repose to our minds and sheathe, if not remove, the anguish of affliction. And why should we even wish to resist? Fate's supreme ordainer is not only the all-wise God, but an all-gracious Father. Embrace every event as good and prosperous, though it may for the present carry an aspect of the reverse. Think you not that he loves and careth for us more and better than we for ourselves? But as the tenderest parent below doth oftentimes cross the inclinations of his children with a view to do them good and obliges them both to do and undergo many things against the bent of their wills, so does the great parent of all. And the footnote. Above all, when the suffering Christian takes his election into account and knows that he was, by an eternal and immutable act of God, appointed to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, that of course he hath a city prepared for him above, a building of God, a house not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens, and that the heaviest sufferings of the present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in the saints. What adversity can possibly befall us which the assured hope of blessings like these will not infinitely overbalance? A comfort so divine may trials well endure. However keenly afflictions might wound us on their first access, yet under the impression of such intimating views we should quickly come to ourselves again and the arrows of tribulation would in great measure become pointless. Christians want nothing but absolute resignation to render them perfectly happy in every possible circumstance and absolute resignation can only flow from an absolute belief of and an absolute acquiescence of God's absolute providence founded on absolute predestination. The Apostle himself draws these conclusions to our hand in Romans 8, where after having laid down as most undoubted axioms the eternity and immutability of God's purposes, he thus winds up the whole. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Such, therefore, among others, being the uses that arise from the faithful preaching and the cordial reception of predestination, may we not venture to affirm with Luther that our faith and all right worship of God depend in no small degree upon our knowledge of that doctrine. The excellent Melanchthon, in his first commonplaces, which received the sanction of Luther's express approbation, does in the first chapter, which treats professedly the free will and predestination, set out with clearing and establishing the doctrine of God's decrees, and then proceeds to point out the necessity and manifold usefulness of asserting and believing it. He even goes so far as to affirm roundly that a right fear of God and a true confidence in Him can be learned more assuredly from no other source than from the doctrine of predestination. But Melanchthon's judgment of these matters will best appear from the whole passage, which the reader will find in the book and chapter just referred to. He says, Divine predestination quite strips men of his boasted liberty, for all things come to pass according to God's foreappointment, even the internal thoughts of all creatures, no less than the external works. Therefore, the Apostle gives us to understand that God performeth all things according to the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1 And our Lord himself asks, Are not two sparrows sold for a filing? Yet one of them falleth not to the ground without your father. Matthew 10 Pray, what can be more full to the point than such a declaration? So Solomon, the Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Proverbs 16 And in chapter 20, man's goings are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? To which the prophet Jeremiah does also set his seal, saying in chapter 10, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. The historical part of Scripture teaches us the same great truth. So Genesis 15 we read that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. In 1 Samuel 2 we are told that Eli's sons hearkened not to his reproof because the Lord would slay them. What could bear a stronger resemblance to chance and accident than Saul's calling upon Samuel only with a view to seek out his father's asses? 1 Samuel 9 Yet the visit was foreordained of God in designed to answer a purpose little thought of by Saul. 1 Samuel 9 verses 15 and 16 See also a most remarkable chain of predestinated events in reference to Saul and foretold by the prophet. 1 Samuel chapter 10 verses 2 and 8 In pursuance of the divine preordination there went with Saul a band of men whose hearts God had touched. 1 Samuel chapter 10 verse 26 The harshness of King Rehoboam's answer to the ten tribes and the subsequent revolt of those tribes from his dominion are by the sacred historian 
expressly ascribed to God's decree. Wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people. For the cause was from the Lord, that he might perform his saying, which the Lord spake by Abijah the Shimerite, unto Jeroboam the son of Nebat, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 15. What is the drift of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 and 11? But to resolve all things that come to pass into God's predestination, the judgment of the flesh or of mere unregenerate reason usually starts back from this truth with horror. But on the contrary, the judgment of a spiritual man will embrace it with affection. You will not learn either the fear of God or affiance in Him from a sure source than from getting your mind deeply tinctured and seasoned with this doctrine of predestination. Does not Solomon in the book of Proverbs inculcate it throughout unjustly? For how else could he direct men to fear God and trust in Him? The same he does in the book of Ecclesiastes. Nor had anything so powerful a tendency to repress the pride of man's encroaching reason and to lower the swelling conceit of his supposed discretion as the firm belief that all things are from God. What invincible comfort did Christ impart to his disciples in assuring them that their very hairs were all numbered by the Creator? Is there then, may an objector say, no such thing as contingency, no such thing as chance, or fortune? No. The doctrine of Scripture is that all things come to pass necessarily. Be it so that to you some events seem to happen contingently, you nevertheless must not be run away with by the suggestions of your own narrow-sighted reason. Solomon himself, the wisest of men, was so deeply versed in the doctrine of inscrutable predestination as to leave this humbling maxim on record. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done upon the earth, then I beheld all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, because though a man labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yea, Father, though a wise man think to know it, yet shall he not be able to find it. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verses 16 and 17. Melanchthon prosecutes the argument much further, but this may suffice for a specimen, and it is not unworthy of notice that Luther so highly approved of Melanchthon's performance, and especially of the first chapter from whence the above extract is given, that he, Luther, thus writes of it in his epistle to Erasmus, prefixed to his book, that it was worthy of everlasting duration and to be received unto the ecclesiastical canon. Let it likewise be observed that Melanchthon never, to the very last, retracted a word of what he there delivers, which a person of his piety and integrity would most certainly have done, had he afterwards, as some have artfully and falsely insinuated, found reason to change his judgment on these heads. New chapter, page 154, in appendix, concerning the fate of the ancients, from the Latin of Justice Lipsius. Fate, says Alpius, according to Plato, is that whereby the purpose and designs of God are accomplished. Hence, the Platonics considered providence under a threefold distinction. 1. 
that which gave birth to all effects and is defined by them to be the will of the Supreme God. The actual agency of the secondary or inferior beings who were supposed to pervade the heavens and from thence by their influence to regulate and dispose of all sublimary things and especially to prevent the extinction of any one species below. 3. The Providentia Terita supposed to be exerted by the Genii whose office it was to exercise a particular care over mankind to guard our persons and direct our actions. But the stoical view of providence or fate was abundantly more simple and required no such nicety of distinction. These philosophers did at once derive all the chain of causes and effects from their true and undoubted source, the will of the one living and true God. Hence, with these sages, the words deity, fate, and providence were frequently reciprocated as terms synonymous. Thus, Seneca, speaking of God, says, Will you call him fate? You will call him rightly, for all things are suspended on him. Himself is causa causaturum, the cause of all causes beside. The laws of the universe are from God, whence the same philosopher elsewhere observes that all things go on according to a certain rule or decree ordained forever, meaning the law of fate. So Cicero says, all things come to pass according to the sovereignty of the internal law. And Pinder probably had an eye to this where he says that the law ruleth all, whether gods or mortals. Menlius most certainly said, Sed nihil in tota magus est maribol mol quam ratio et certus quad ligvius omnia parent, whereby ratio is evidently meant the decreeing mind of God, and by legus is meant fate, or that series of causes and effects which is the offspring of his decree. Homer cannot begin his Iliad without asserting this grand truth. The counsel or decree of Jupiter was fulfilled. The divine poet sets out on this exalted principle. He puts it in front of the noblest poem in the world as a testimony both of his wisdom and his fate. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T-1-1.
T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.